In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. True Crime Reporter goes inside the yellow crime scene tape. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with true crime stories that are stranger than fiction. You can follow my journey into darkness and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. With that said, here's another story ripped from the pages of my reporter's notebook. A True Crime Reporter Extra. Well, it's Long John. Uh, long John. He's Long gone. Uh, long gone. He's Long Long African-American convicts at the Darrington Prison Farm in Texas sing in rhythm to the swing of their axes. A 1934 recording captures a work song led by a prisoner called Lightning Washington by his fellow inmates who said he could think faster than the warden. They chant, It's a Long John, about an escape from bondage. Folklorist John Lomax and his son Alan recorded the music of African-American convicts here during the Depression. Darrington was originally a Civil War-era plantation. Convict labor leased from the Texas Prison Commission supplanted slave labor. In 1918, the Prison Commission purchased the 6,747-acre plantation located south of Houston. Today, inmates still raise cows, pigs, and poultry here and work the fields planting and harvesting crops. The Texas prison systems were self-sufficient. They grew and they, they grew their own food and and uh, uh, raised their own cattle and sheep and and hogs. They, they they back in the day they had the third largest hog operation in the world. John Moriarty is the former Inspector General of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. He was the prison system's top fugitive hunter. Is it mostly changing? It's, it's not self-sufficient, I can tell you that, and um, because of all the changes, and uh, probably for the better. In 1963, before racial desegregation, the prison housed white second-time offenders. By the 1980s, Darrington, now called a maximum security unit, held the leaders of violent prison gangs among its more than 1,800 inmates. In 1986, the prison system built a 12-foot-high gun walk so guards could keep a closer eye on inmates in the recreation yard. This brings us to the Thanksgiving holiday of 1994. Saturday, November 26th, Darrington was on a skeleton security shift. 
Most of the unit's 425 guards were at home with their families. Inmate Gregory Ott was inside the prison boiler room, filling a water sample for a daily test. At about 9.05 p.m., the doorbell to the room buzzed. Ott thought it was a guard making rounds and pushed the button to open the electric clock. Inmate Jason Montgomery pushed inside, followed by 26-year-old Dennis Wayne Hope. Montgomery was serving a life sentence for attempted capital murder. Hope was serving an 80-year sentence for armed robberies. Hope grabbed Ott from behind, put his arm around his neck, forced him to the floor, and said, I was told to just kill you, but I've got nothing against you. Lie there and shut up, and you won't get hurt. Hope and Montgomery tied Ott's hands behind his back and his legs with electrical wire and bound his hands with electrical tape. They wanted to know if all of the prison lights would go out when the electrical power was shut off. Ott replied yes, but was afraid the boiler would blow up. Hope and Montgomery pulled green prison blankets out of their shirts and began tying the blankets around their legs. The doorbell buzzed again. A third inmate, Harry Decker, showed up. Decker was serving a life sentence for aggravated robbery. The leggings made out of blankets would help them get through razor wire on the prison fences. They had also made dark clothing with hoods out of the blankets to cover their white prison uniforms. Hope masterminded the escape plan, but inmates Montgomery and Decker didn't know that Hope was using them to distract attention from his own escape. The blue-eyed, 5-foot-8-inch, 152-pound inmate had appeared to be a fitness fanatic doing hundreds of push-ups and handstands every day. He calculated that 10 laps around the prison recreation yard was a mile. He would run at least 10 miles a day. He would run around the prison yard, put some rocks in his pocket, and as he made a, a lap, he'd put, move it over to another pocket so he could tell when he'd run 10 miles, when he did a lot of exercise and working out and getting ready. Lewis Fawcett was a prison investigator assigned to the FBI Violent Crime Task Force in Dallas. Fawcett specialized in hunting fugitives. Two weeks after joining the FBI squad, Dennis Hope became his first case. Dennis Hope had been a grocery store stalker in Dallas. When he got passed over for a promotion, the 22-year-old retaliated. He knew where money was kept and the schedule when armored cars would pick up daily deposits. He robbed four supermarkets at gunpoint, some of the very ones where he had worked, and fired a round into one store as he left. In two other robberies, Hope dressed up in a uniform stolen from an armored car company. He called a grocery store manager telling him that the regular armored car was running late and he was the substitute. Hope walked out with $29,200 in cash from the first robbery and $37,000 in the second robbery. The real armored cars would roll in shortly after Hope had made his getaway. Later that month, a Dallas police detective spotted Hope wearing a shoulder holster with a Ruger 6 blue steel revolver in it at the Borrowed Money Bar nightclub parking lot. Hope claimed he was a sheriff's deputy. He flashed a small badge with special police officer written on it and produced a pair of handcuffs. 
The detective arrested him on the spot for impersonating an officer. Behind bars in the Dallas County Jail, Hope arrogantly demanded catered meals and a television for his cell. Five months later, on his way to stand trial, Hope vanished from a line of prisoners who were handcuffed together at the Dallas County Courthouse. He used a key smuggled into the jail, hidden in his mouth, to get out of the cuffs. Hope stripped off his white prison overalls down to his boxer shorts and jogged off through downtown Dallas. So he was running down the street when a policeman pulled up beside him and, and spoke to him. He said, I'm up out trying out for the triathlon officer. How are you today? Basically, just struck a conversation, didn't panic, didn't run, didn't fight. And officer said, okay, we'll have a nice day. He drove off. So he was very confident, very confident. Four days later, Hope stole a Pontiac Trans Am from a service station when the driver left her keys in the ignition and went inside to pay. The next day, Hope got into a high-speed chase. It ended when a state trooper shot out the tires on his stolen car. Hope rationalized his robbery spree as, I needed the money. In 1991, Hope was sentenced to 80 years in prison on four counts of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon and four 30-year sentences for stealing 20 grand, dressed like an armored car guard, impersonating an officer, escape, and car theft. Taking no chances, the Dallas County Sheriff transported Hope to the Texas prison system intake in Huntsville, Texas, wearing handcuffs, leg irons, and a belly chain. He was sent to the Darrington Maximum Security Unit due to his high escape risk. Texas is ready for a new generation of leadership. And I will Four years later, in November of 1994, George W. Bush was elected governor of Texas on a law and order agenda. Hope wrote to his mother that making parole was now hopeless. No pun intended. Those were his words. The uh, escape itself was very clever. I mean, that uh, he was determined he was going to go or he's going to die in the process. I really believe that. After taking over the prison boiler room during Thanksgiving of 1994, Hope dashed toward the interior prison fence located 100 feet away. As Hope ran, inmate Montgomery flipped off the master electrical switch. The maximum security prison suddenly went dark. Hope cut a hole in the wire fence with pliers, went through it, and then climbed over the exterior prison fence. Inmates Montgomery and Decker were too weak to follow him over the exterior fence. They had to cut a hole in the wire, which slowed down their escape. They had trouble, and I think both of those were smokers, and Dennis didn't smoke, uh, and he was in shape. He'd been preparing for it, I think, for a while. Now... Dennis cut a hole in the fence with wire cutters. People listening to this are going to wonder, where does an inmate in prison get wire cutters that they can cut a hole in a fence to escape? Well, there's maintenance departments, and a lot of the inmates work as trustees in maintenance, so they have access to a lot of uh, tools. But they, they keep fairly good 
count of all the tools employees do, but now and then one will slip through. At 9.30 p.m., a guard in a picket tower located 100 yards away saw inmates Decker and Montgomery running in the dark. He ordered them to halt and fired a warning shot with his rifle. They briefly stopped and started running again. The guard fired four more rounds. Decker fell to the ground, crying out that he had been shot in the foot. Montgomery crawled back to help him. Decker hadn't been shot. He had sprained his ankle. The pair got up and started running again. The guard fired four more rounds, but missed a gun. John Moriarty, who led the hunt for the escapees, said the prison released its bloodhounds to find the inmates. Did he use these other two escapees basically as bait? Yeah, they were basically dog bait, you know, because he knew that the, the minute that uh, they, they went over the wire, um, the dogs would be put on the ground and they'd be tracking them. So Dennis Wayne Hub goes one way, but he sends his other two escapees another way, and they're bait for the dogs. How long does it take to like put them down? Within a couple hours, they're they're apprehended. Montgomery and Decker were caught on the prison grounds. Guard found inmate Montgomery lying flat on his back, covered with leaves, sticks, grass, and other brush. When ordered to get up, Montgomery told the officer, "Quote." I was just laying here thinking about the blue skies and the Bahamas when your funky ass found me. I thought I had made it and was just about to roll me a cigarette. Later, a captain of correctional officers who lived on the unit heard a noise outside. In the carport, he found inmate Decker leaning against the driver's side of his Ford van, dressed only in his inmate underwear and wearing tennis shoes. When asked what he was doing, inmate Decker responded, I'm just watching, and he gave up. Meanwhile, where's Dennis? He's he's on a full run from the time he hits the fence. He's he's gone. I mean, he's long gone and uh, into a, a populated area. You know, and and he knew the distance because he had found a church pamphlet that somebody had left at one of their services there at the unit that had a map of where their church was, and so he saw from that how far. Pearland was, he was able to plot his course. So when he hit the fence, he knew exactly what direction he was going to go. Hope ran eight miles at a fast clip, swam across a canal, rolled in the dirt to turn his white prison garb brown, and ran 13 more miles to Pearland, Texas, south of Houston. He lived off of hamburger buns thrown out from a McDonald's and hid in the weeds. He watched a service station for the next customer to leave keys in the ignition. When the driver of a GMC pickup truck went inside to pay the cashier, Hope slipped behind the wheel. He had a long head start on fugitive hunter John Moriarty. And what do you then typically do as a fugitive hunter? Well, there's a the ground search in the perimeter um, that um, goes up is obviously the first thing that happens. They notify us. Uh, we set up a, a large command center operation in, in Huntsville. And we have, of course, a presence there. We're conducting interviews of uh, cellmates and uh, employees and uh, trying, to, trying to get uh, any piece of uh, information that we can about the possible whereabouts of, 
what he did. But one thing uh, I've learned over the years that uh, these guys are creatures of habit. So the first thing to do is to look at the the files on the guy and see what he did in the past because he's going to go back to what he did uh, uh, without a doubt. Hope proved to be a creature of habit. He headed back home to Rockwall, a suburb of Dallas. In Mesquite, another suburb, Hope dumped the stolen pickup at a convenience store. He approached an 82-year-old man in the parking lot, told him that he had sprained his ankle and needed a ride. Several blocks away, as the Good Samaritan neared his home, Hope pulled out a hunting knife to carjack him. He was acting like that he needed a ride and got in the car with this gentleman and then pulled a knife that he had found in the, in the pickup truck. The uh, elderly gentleman tried to grab the knife and grab the blade, and Dennis pulled the knife out of his hand and cut him. Told him, I'm not trying to hurt you. I just, you know, need a ride. So he jumps over to the driver's seat, and uh, they take off. In the process of doing that, he threw his inmate ID card down just very close to where the this truck was located and very close to where the store was located. So he ditched his inmate ID, and he took the elderly gentleman's ID. Not so much the driver's license, but anything else that he had mm-hmm. with a name on it. And he put the old man out of the car and, and took off in that vehicle. And he goes to where? He took off to parts unknown. Hope took the elderly man's wallet with $80 inside and dropped him off on the side of the road. For the next several days, he lived inside the car and would eat at McDonald's. He purchased a BB pistol at a sporting goods store near the Borrowed Money nightclub. Remember it? The place where he had been arrested four years earlier for impersonating a sheriff's deputy? Hope truly was a creature of habit, and that would play to the advantage of Moriarty and Fawcett, who were hot on his trail. Hope used the BB gun to rob one of the very grocery stores that he originally had been convicted of robbing. Brazenly went into the grocery store with a marked Irving police patrol car parked in front. Hope held up a clerk for $1,300 and calmly walked out past the police officer. He drove his carjacked vehicle to a vantage point, watched and laughed, as the grocery store's employees ran outside to tell the officer in the park patrol car that they had been robbed. It was payback. Hope felt he was treated unfairly when he'd received 80 years for his earlier robberies. Well, I mean, that's what he said. He, you know, he wasn't going to do that time. Didn't feel like he earned that time. Didn't feel like he deserved that time for a little case of robbery. He said he didn't hurt anybody. And, of course, my response to that, if you put a gun on a young girl, you've hurt her because she's terrified, you know, and you'll affect what she does. And that'll affect her the rest of her life. But anyway, that was his attitude. He didn't hurt anybody. It wasn't, you know, nobody, no harm, no foul, so to speak. Investigators launched a statewide dragnet for Hope immediately after his escape. Crime Stoppers posted an award. Wanted posters were distributed to grocery stores across the Dallas metropolitan area. Investigators followed up on dozens of leads and sightings of Hope. They interviewed ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, family members, friends, work associates, and his fellow inmates. 
One woman told them that Hope lived three different lives. Number one, husband and Christian image. Number two, rich man's son to his girlfriends. And number three, top thief in town. So he he came back to Dallas and started robbing some of the same grocery store uh, armored car visits that he did in the past. Was that habit or was that just, I'm going to thumb my nose at everyone? I, you know, like I said, uh, what I've learned is that they, they're, uh, we're all creatures of habit, but especially convicts, uh, you know, that uh, uh, that's how they made their living before. They didn't get caught for all of them. They didn't, they didn't get prosecuted for all of them, but they go back to what they know. And in his case, um, you know, he, he, he worked scams involving picking up money from uh, grocery stores dressed as a, a um, uh, guard on an armored car. Um, he would surveil them. He would know their times, know their routines because of his prior experience also working at these grocery stores and uh, would go in and make the money pick up the, you know, the ability to obtain the money without having to uh, uh, kill anyone or shoot anyone, or uh, uh, that's kind of what he did. A dozen FBI surveillance teams staked out grocery stores with this order from their supervisor. Given our boy's history, it should go without saying that you ensure you have a full tank of gas. He likes to travel at high rates of speed and for long distances. Please wear your vest and have your raid jacket handy in case we get rolling and have the occasion to get out on foot. I am certain there will be an overabundance of plainclothes detectives, and I don't want any identity mistakes. We had uh, SWAT teams looking, SWAT teams on top of buildings and parking lots and every place else you could think to put them. So wouldn't Hope case all the grocery stores, spot the FBI stakeouts, and then drive just a few blocks down the street and uh, where there was a place not under surveillance and hit it just to kind of thumb his nose at the FBI? Well, we had one store staked out, and that wasn't the one that he hit. He actually hit another one down the street or not far from there. But is it he's making a statement? Yeah, I, I I think he he was, and and uh, I think he was thumbing his nose at us. Later on, it, you know, obviously we learned he wasn't residing in the Dallas area when when we apprehended him. After committing the first grocery store robbery, Hope headed to Memphis, Tennessee. He would use Memphis as his home base to commute back and forth to Dallas to commit more armed robberies. In Memphis, he was charming women and spending thousands of dollars from the robberies at casinos in Tunica, Mississippi, a short drive south of Memphis. Unlike a scene from the movie Cool Hand Luke, Hope sent letters and $50 money orders to his friends back at Darrington, bragging about his cool life on the outside. He signed one as your bro, Dangerous D. On another letter, the return address in Hope's handwriting was Irk McGlurk from 1269 Drop Trousers, Austin, Texas. Another letter contained the P.S. message, 
Big Bank Hank. It was a code that Hope had recovered money hidden from an earlier armored car robbery. But for all of his bravado, Hope apparently got homesick at Christmas and made a mistake. The state of Texas is pretty unique in that uh, they'll spend a million dollars to go after you because their attitude is if you don't catch one, you'll be uh, you'll be chasing them all. So we ended up um, getting up, uh, uh, putting some electronic surveillance on some phones of some known associates, and and there was a woman uh, that we suspected that he had had an affair with. Uh, that was residing in the Dallas area. And on Christmas Day, that the phone got multiple calls from the Memphis area. So uh, uh, at that point, uh, a couple days after Christmas, we loaded up, uh, Lou Fawcett and I, we went to Memphis. Police in a suburb of Memphis found an abandoned 1985 beige overbrown four-door Oldsmobile 98 with a luggage rack on the rear trunk and mud flaps on the rear tires. It was the vehicle that Hope had carjacked from the elderly man. Moriarty and Fawcett arrived in Memphis at 3 a.m. on February 2nd of 1995. They found clues that Hope had left in the stolen car, a receipt for an ID photo purchased at a Memphis shopping mall, a newspaper with ads circle for apartments and rental furniture, a receipt from a motel where he had stayed, and a newspaper ad for a Honda CRX with the owner's name and phone number scrawled on it in Hope's handwriting. Hope had bought it on December 16, 1994, for $2,850 cash. He had used the Honda to drive back and forth for the multiple armed robberies in Dallas. Hope had been stopped by local police in the Memphis area twice. Fawcett says the officers were very lucky. They just don't care about anybody except themselves. You know, the most of them, it's me, me, me. It's all about themselves and whatever they got to do to get what they want. You know, the sociopaths and psychopaths and people like that. And Dennis fit that. He hit it to a T. He, in fact, told us that he was planning on or was prepared to kill a Memphis officer that stopped him in that Jaguar. He was driving around. He, of course, had no driver's license. And when these two officers, uniformed officers, stopped him, he was sizing up which one he was going to shoot, trying to determine which one was wearing a vest and which one wasn't. But he talked himself right out of it. I mean, he he convinced them that he was just out. He got lost, got in the wrong neighborhood, and they let him go without a warning ticket or anything. Hope stayed true to the habits of ex-cons on the run. Moriarty traced the phone number that Hope had used to call a girlfriend on Christmas Eve to the executive office of a meat distributor in Memphis. The second call was from a business at a, um, a home meat delivery type place. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it was again around the holidays. There weren't a whole lot of people working and, and, uh, but the boss was there. So it was coming in off of his phone and, um, which was very unusual. So, uh, we were kind of concerned about whether or not, uh, we should approach him or should we watch the place? And we decided, uh, we'll, 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 
call, we'll, we'll just approach them uh, kind of covertly. So uh, we went in. He, he told us that, oh, that phone is answered uh, by his secretary. So we got a hold of her. She was a uh, a nice, uh, pleasant uh, young lady, and and uh, she uh, said uh, we started asking her questions about who had made phone calls. Were you here on Christmas Eve? Well, she had she had come in and uh, brought her sister and the sister's boyfriend in. And so at that point, we showed her a photograph, and she said, yeah, that's my sister's boyfriend, uh, identifying Dennis Wayne Hope as being the person that used the phone to call Texas. It's uh, one of the things that they do a great job of covering themselves, you know, uh, usually, and, and trying to hide. But the associates that are with them don't always do such a great job. So at that point, um, her sister was out of town. And of course, there were no cell phones then. It was pagers and, and that yeah. kind of thing. And so, um, but she had his pager number. And uh, so we had her page and uh, she called him back at work. And, and knowing that the sister was out of, out of town, uh, he said, oh, you know, where, where can I, she said, where can I meet you or whatever? Can we, you know, go have a beer? What are you doing tonight? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, he said, I'll be at this country western bar. Hope had told his new girlfriend in Memphis that he owned a country western bar back in Dallas. Investigators discovered that Hope had also bought a black Jaguar with his stolen loot. When they pulled into the parking lot of the Denim and Diamonds Country Western Nightclub in Memphis, there it was, the black Jaguar. When you looked in the car, you could see the butt of a 45 automatic underneath the driver's seat. So, you know, we knew he was armed and or would be armed. And, and um, so we disabled the vehicle uh, in, in order that if he did get out on us, that he that he um, that it wouldn't start and, 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 the, and the tires were, were without air. Moriarty and Fawcett went inside Denim and Diamonds. It was the largest country western club in Memphis. Moriarty worked undercover and he looked like an ex-con, bearded with long hair, dressed in street clothes. Fawcett didn't look much different, certainly nothing like a cop. Far across the 31,000 square foot dance hall, Moriarty spotted Hope wearing a white straw cowboy hat. He stood at a table holding court, the center of attention. Our concerns, obviously, were that if we if we snatch them up and um, we snatch them up, that the bouncers would, you know, think we were starting a fight. Just as I'm, we're talking, a, a fight call drops at the bar that we're at, and so that that was kind of like perfect because it allowed you know plenty of cops to pour into the place, and we ended up. Uh, going back in, getting up close to them, waiting for the uniforms to arrive. They told the uniforms that, you know, we were in there and what we were wearing and, and what was going on. So they were dealing with that fight with the bouncers and everybody else. And then uh, the, the, the marshals came in uh, with, the, with the cops and um, with police jacket, ray jackets on, and Lou and I jumped them and put them on the ground and 
And uh, he just could not believe that two cops from Texas were in Memphis taking his ass in, to jail. He was shocked. I told him, I said, you're going back to Dallas. Your name is Dennis Hope. You're going back to Dallas with us. Nearly nine hours after arriving in Memphis and running down dozens of leads, Moriarty and Fawcett took Hope into custody at 11.45 p.m. on February 2, 1995. Hope was carrying more than $6,000 in cash and a pager on him. But their investigation wasn't over. Moriarty and Fawcett obtained a subpoena to get the billing information for the pager. The address led to a boarding house where Hope had rented a room shortly after his arrival in Memphis. Forty minutes after Moriarty and Fawcett arrived there, Hope called the landlord from jail. He asked if police were there and claimed they were a front for a robbery. Hope asked the landlord to get $17,000 hidden in a TV box and duffel bag, as well as a 45 caliber semi-automatic handgun out of the house. The landlord was having none of that. He consented to a search. Moriarty and Fawcett found a treasure trove of evidence that would send Hope to prison for the rest of his life. He was commuting from Memphis doing the robberies, doing the surveillance, and, 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 and taking down those places. We found a, when we searched his place later, we found large amounts of, of cash and currency and, and, uh, that were taken into robberies, all the a bunch of, you know, a bunch of the, obviously the money that he had taken, but um, also he was getting ready to do more uh, armored car stuff. He was putting together a uniform and ID cards from Brinks and, and that kind of thing. He was cutting and pasting and mm -hmm. looked pretty good. By the way, Hope's new Memphis girlfriend collected the $5,000 reward for his capture and kept the Jaguar. Well, what have I got to lose? Back in custody at the Dallas County Jail, Hope bluntly told me and the FBI that he was already planning his next escape. Jail Commander Bob Knowles was worried. I don't think I've ever seen anybody that has spent the time to plan as he does. Uh, and he's very patient. When I walked up to his cell, Hope was doing push-ups in a handstand position. He would do hundreds of them every day and run in place for hours. Five officers escorted Hope out of his cell to our interview. They put him in handcuffs and leg irons. Wearing an orange prison jumpsuit, Hope shuffled his feet. He wore a vest that worked like a stun gun to prevent him from escaping again on the way to court. One wrong move, and guards could press a remote control button that would send a 50,000-volt charge for eight seconds into Hope's lower back muscles. I watched a video demonstration of the vest. It knocked burly deputies off their feet into kicking and screaming fits. None of these security measures discouraged Hope, not one bit. He showed me on camera how he could twist the plastic ink refill from my ballpoint pen into a handcuff key. His guards were stunned. After seeing my television news report, the Dallas County Jail banned ballpoint pens. It sounds like you're already looking for the opportunity to make a run for it again. I mean, will you be back? No, I'm not, I'm not going to stop trying. And I look at it, if they kill me and I'm trying to get away and they do kill me, well, then the state still didn't get the 80 years out of me. 
Sure enough, during a federal court appearance, one of Hope's guards could not find the key to his handcuffs. Hope had apparently lifted it and swallowed it. The Dallas County Sheriff wanted nothing more to do with Dennis Hope. After angry exchanges, the feds moved Hope to a privately run jail. Hope wrote to a friend from there that the facility isn't a year old and is falling apart. Doors stay ajar because the foundation is shifting and the cell doors can easily be opened. And in closing, he noted, P.S. I am using a ballpoint pen. A few weeks later, Hope sprung open the remote locking device on his cell door. He assaulted a guard with a metal drain cover he had pried loose from the shower and briefly took over the command center. Afterwards, officers found hacksaw blades and a shank made out of a toothbrush handle in his cell. He had almost sawed through a door lock, and he had already been caught trying to dig through a wall. Then Assistant U.S. Attorney David Finn prosecuted Hope on federal charges. He's extremely intelligent. He's extremely wily. Um, most criminals, particularly violent criminals, are not nearly as intelligent as Mr. Hope, which is really the tragedy here because he could obviously apply himself to something productive. On August 18th of 1995, a seven-man, five-woman jury deliberated for less than an hour before convicting Hope on eight counts of robbery, felony possession of a firearm, and carjacking. During the four-day trial, the jury was shown my televised interview with Hope. Federal prosecutor David Finn called Hope cagey, dangerous, and savvy. He urged the jury to put an end to this one-man crime machine. He's essentially the criminal equivalent of the Energizer rabbit. He keeps going and going and going, um, both in prison and outside of prison. In the federal courtroom, U.S. Marshals had to strap Hope to a bare chair. The leather cover had been removed, so Hope could not pry loose an upholstery tack to use as a weapon. Before the verdict, he scuffled with officers and threatened to stab his court-appointed attorney in the skull with a pencil. The judge stacked a 72-year federal prison sentence on top of Hope's 80-year Texas sentence. When you say that a man's... Uh been sentenced to where he'd be locked up the rest of his life, common sense would lead you to believe, you know, what his intentions were. A year later, Hope was still defiant when I interviewed him inside the Supermax Telford unit in rural northeast Texas. The Telford prison unit looks like a massive concrete bunker surrounded by rings of security fences and rolls of razor-sharp concertino wire. Hope found himself under the scrutiny of Jack Garner, who was then regarded as one of the toughest prison wardens in Texas. What do you do with a Dennis Wayne Hope who has nothing to lose? My opinion is we lock him up right where he's at and throw away the key. Dennis Wayne Hope should never get out of the penitentiary. Hope was put into administrative segregation called ADSEG. It's a prison within a maximum security prison. John Moriarty describes the restricted life inside solitary confinement. Yeah, he, he's so far back in the penitentiary, they're feeding him with a slingshot. But he went in something called administrative segregation, which is a prison within the prison. That's correct. When you get locked up in prison, that, that's where you go. You're uh, 23 hours a day, single-celled, one hour out to shower and recreate. Uh, you know, it's, it's the bowels of the prison. And um, 
You're, you're afforded all of the care that is required by law, but um, you're, you're, it, it's the, the tightest security that the prison system has. And I've been in there and all your meals come through a uh, locked little window slot that opens in the door. The bean slot, yep, absolutely. They call it a bean slot, and that, that's how you get fed. And, and when you are taken out of that cell, you back up and put your arms through that hole, and you're handcuffed, and um, there's a leash put on you, and, uh, uh, you know, the door's open, and, and you, you're, 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 you know you're in custody. And there are always two guards handling you. That's correct. And... Uh, I think isn't the only is it the only place where the guards are actually are armed with a club or something uh, some kind of protection? They it isn't the only place, but they do carry uh, uh, a, a club and uh, gas. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the first time I went in administrative segregation, the noise is what really struck me. It's very intimidating at first. It's almost like you've gone into a dog pound full of, of angry pit bulls. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very violent place. Um, you know, it's, it's the place where people who can't, uh, who can't act uh, properly in a prison, which is saying a lot, are put. You know, the chances of you having feces and, and urine thrown on you and uh, uh, other uh, other liquids that they heat up with what they call a stinger, um, uh, it's a dangerous place to work. I mean, it's the worst of the worst. Hope's tiny cell contained a small sink built on top of a seatless toilet made out of stainless steel in a prison factory. He slept on a thin cloth mattress atop a steel slab, both of which were also made in a prison factory. Daylight shined through a small slit in the wall near the ceiling. You couldn't see outside. Two guards armed with metal batons came to escort Hope to his daily one hour of recreation. Guards used a wrench to open a small slot in his cell door. Hope had to strip down lower his boxer shorts, and bend over for an anal cavity inspection for weapons. The guards ordered Hope to turn around with his arms behind his back. He extended his wrist through the slot in the door to get handcuffed. When the cell door slid open, the guards firmly grasped Hope by each arm and walked him down the cell block. Inside a caged recreation yard, I watched Hope perform his daily regimen of physical training, running laps, and doing hundreds of handstand-style push-ups. Warden Garner wasn't the least bit worried about Hope. He beamed with pride that an inmate that escaped from him to Mexico a decade earlier had just been captured. The warden had kept the inmate's photograph in his wallet as a reminder and pledged that Hope would never get away. I promise you, if Hope ever runs off, uh, I will be on Hope's doorstep every step of the way. Dennis Hope confidently told me that old-time wardens like Garner would retire someday. The prison system would forget about his notorious escapes, 
he would bide his time and plan another break for freedom. In a 2009 letter to a British television producer who was interested in his story, Hope stated, In some areas I threw caution to the wind. To me, life is defined by more than just a heartbeat. It's about living and enjoying some, if not all, of what you do. It would serve no purpose to be on the lam if I were just hiding under a rock. I never had any intentions of coming back to prison. I'd either be dead or exercising my freedom somewhere in the United States. It's a little hard to be forgotten by prison wardens when you keep threatening to escape in television interviews. Perhaps Hope gave up his escape plans years ago and decided that the only way to reach what inmates call the free world is through a fleeting moment of fame in the media. At the time of this episode in 2021, Dennis Wayne Hope was 52 years old. Hope is pictured with a strong jaw and short salt and pepper hair in his most recent prison mugshot. He has literally been buried in the Texas prison system for a quarter century. He has been denied parole for 15 years. Over the years, I received letters from women who claimed he had run lonely heart scams on them to get money for his prison commissary fund. Others professed their undying love for Hope and the unfairness of his prison sentences. The story of his childhood is depressing. In high school, he told his classmates his mother was dead. He periodically survived alone in the woods, homeless. Maybe that's what tempered Hope to survive all of these years in harsh, solitary confinement. Or maybe it's the thought that someday, someone will make a careless mistake and Hope will make a break for freedom again. After all, as Dennis Wayne Hope told me, I have nothing to lose. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of truecrimereporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.